0: Unlike
1: me.
0: Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various people about the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule. Simple. Now, they pick four things that they cherish and would like to preserve, and one that they would like to bury and never have to think about again. My guest this week is Rebecca Front. You'll know Rebecca from The Day To Day, The Thick Of It, Alan Partridge, Nighty Night, Humans, The Aeronauts, and most recently, Avenue 5 with Hugh Laurie. And, of course, from hundreds of other television, film and radio appearances. I spoke to Rebecca at her home. In fact, in her bedroom. Well, she had the plumbers in. That's not a euphemism. I started by talking to Rebecca about her career. Your career is going brilliantly at the moment, isn't it?
1: Well, you know, you're talking to an actor here, Mike. So yeah. obviously, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, ne- I'm never going to work again, and it's all a disaster. And everybody else is doing better than me. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, what it's like. Yes, I, I, I don't do. not think I've ever, I've ever reached a point in my career when, when I thought, oh, it's all going swimmingly. Yeah. I do remember talking to a, an actress a while ago. I was having lunch with this this friend and. She's a bit younger than me, and she says something like, oh, you know, I do, I I cannot wait to get to the point that you're at, you know, where it's all just plain sailing. And (laughs) I nearly spat my food. (laughs) slapped her. (laughs) Do you seriously think that that's that's a thing? (laughs) No. Because I don't know any
0: actor who thinks that, ever. You never get there. Even people you think are really huge stars Mm. have that dilemma, don't they? Mm.
1: Absolutely. I remember my brother talking about, he went to a talk by, I think it was Dustin Hoffman. Um, and he said that one of the reasons he directed a film a few years ago was because he felt like, you know, his acting career was, <laughs> was on the way and it wasn't working out too well and I mean, you know, what hope is there for the rest of us? Oh really? no. <laughs> uh, excuse
0: me, I'm just gonna go and slash my wrist.
1: <laughs> anyway, there you go. Yeah. So uh, but no, it's, it's all going very nicely. Thank you very much for mentioning it.
0: I haven't seen the thing that's on uh, Sky.
1: The the mad you? the mad side of Avenue sure. Five. I think, I can say this because I'm only obviously in bits of it, I think it's extremely funny and mm. extremely clever. I absolutely, I mean, I love Armando's work. And we've both worked with him, obviously. Yes. And, um, I, I think Although we did do the one thing that the BBC rejected. <laughs> well, this, yeah. Yeah, I know. But, you know, let's not take that personally. Um, but anyway, yeah, Avenue 5, it's... Um, I think it's going to take a little while for people to, to get it because it's not Veep, it's not thick of it, it's not politicians in an office swearing no. at each other. But it's also not Star Trek in that, you know, you're up in space, but there are no aliens or anything. It's just sort of venal people yes. <laughs> on a cruise with, with horrible leisure wear, <laughs> stuck together. And they, ne- they ne- have no idea how long they're going to be there. And they all hate each other. And it's I think it's brilliant. Uh-huh. It's incredibly funny and clever. And it's very, very Armando. And it's also, of course, a different kind of satire because it's actually... It's a satire on society, on um, how people uh, sort of metaphorically consume each other, you know, that people will just destroy each other, if, Mm. (laughs) clamber over each other in order to get a better deal. So it's it's very, very satirical. But I, I have a feeling it will just take people a while to kind of think, oh, okay, it's that then. So it is Armando and I'm used to that sort of stuff. But is just in a very, very different environment. And then I guess, can share to my mother-in-law days. who's
0: just booked a cruise for the oh, first time in her life really? at the age of 83. It's,
1: I mean, I think there are many things that would put me off going on a cruise. Yes. But Avenue 5 is definitely one of them.
0: Yes. And uh, maybe the entertainment.
1: And possibly the entertainment. <laughs> I don't know. I just would drive. I mean, we've done overnight cross-channel ferries and I can't wait to get off one of those at the end of that. So <laughs> it's really not for me at all.
0: <laughs> uh, so we've got this time capsule yes for you it's uh nicely cleaned i gave it a dusting Lovely.
1: very good okay well i've gone for slightly uncharacteristically for me actually i've gone i've gone quite personal with it oh. um and i've gone for... i'll stop the recording now yeah. <laughs> we're up in my bedroom <laughs> it's, and now i'm telling you we're going to go personal um yeah i've i was trying to think about what you meant about uh as I always do with you, Mike, any communication with you, I just afterwards, I think, what was he talking about? (laughs) So I was trying to think what it was that you had in mind. And then I kind of started thinking about snapshot memories. And you know how sometimes a memory just pops into your head from absolutely nowhere. And it's but it's really clear and really detailed. And I thought maybe those were the things that would be in my time capsule these slightly random little snapshots that you can describe quite clearly like you can when you find an old photo and and you look at it and everything makes sense and you remember where you got the jumper from and how long you'd had it and you know that you'd just had an argument with your you know sibling or something um those kind of memories where it's suddenly very very clear and once I started thinking about that four or five of them quite quickly popped into my head so I thought they would be things to put in the time capsule.
0: Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right.
1: So, should we go through chronologically?
0: Chronologically would work, wouldn't it?
1: Um, so, chronologically, then, the first one is um, is a childhood one, and I was really surprised, actually, that this one popped into my head, because I'm not... I, I grew up in a Jewish household, and, and we never really thought of ourselves as particularly religious, although I think, with hindsight, we, we did a lot of Jewish stuff. We lit candles on Friday nights, and we ate kosher food and things. So I think we were actually probably what people would think of as religious, but we didn't go to synagogue very often. We didn't, I didn't think of us as a practicing family. I mean, to this day, if you, if you show me a page of Hebrew, I could probably pick out maybe three words of it. You know, I, I can stumble through the odd letter. But, so I'm not a sort of, you know, particularly religious Jewish person at all. But one of the first uh, snapshots that popped into my head was of being in synagogue with my family. And I think it was more about the family than the being in synagogue bit. We didn't go regularly, but we would always go once or twice a year for the big festivals. And in a very typically Jewish fashion, um, the biggest of big festivals is the most depressing one, <laughs> which is Yom Kippur, where you'd starve yourself for 25 hours and don't drink anything and just sit in synagogue for as long as you can tolerate. <laughs> Everybody's miserable. Everybody has halitosis and it's all quite grim. Um, but oddly, I quite enjoy it. Um, so we would go every year for Yom Kippur and we'd go for Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year which precedes Yom Kippur. And we'd usually go for two mornings of Rosh Hashanah. And a morning service, by Jewish standards, is relatively uh, concise in that it's a mere four hours long, oh, whereas great, yeah. know, Yom Kippur Whizzes by, <laughs> rattles along at, <laughs> at 17 or something. So, and But in the year running up to my brother's mitzvah, we went more regularly. We were going probably most Saturdays because my brother would have to be up to speed with his Hebrew and so on. Mm. So we, we just did. And oddly... I quite liked it, I think. I mean, I obviously didn't like it enough to carry on going. I mean, now I'm back to going (laughs) going to shul twice a year again. But I think as a kid, I was predisposed to being slightly holier than now anyway. And I quite liked the whole drama of it. I liked the sort of, you know, everybody dressed up smartly and the formality of it, going and yes. sitting sitting in rows and the, a great deal of time is spent standing up and intoning and being quite serious and sombre and then quite a lot of time is spent sitting down with my dad whispering naughty jokes and <laughs> trying to make everybody laugh because he's got... Uh, sort of, so you were
0: acting a role.
1: Yeah, I think maybe that's why I liked it. Yeah, because it was, it was the public face of the front family. Yes. Maybe that is what I liked. And then there'd be other things like the men would always wear prayer shawls. They'd wear these, these longs. They'd obviously wear clothes, the little skull caps. Mm. But they'd also wear these prayer shawls, which have um, a bit of embroidery on them, and then they have a fringe at the bottom, a sort of silk fringe. When I was younger, I just used to, when I got bored in service... I would sit and plait the <laughs> fringes at the end of my dad's prayer shawl, and Dad would find thought this was very sweet, you know. Ooh. So he'd be sitting there, kind of you know, going, "I don't know what I'm doing, In Hebrew, it might be just kind of tying knots and then doing like cornrows at the end. of the <laughs> thing. So that's sort of the snapshot that popped into my head for the time capsule is that's me a sitting. Thing. Next to sitting in a row with my family and and everybody slightly dressed up and my mum wishing she hadn't worn high heels yeah. and me plaiting the fringes.
0: I, I was a I was brought up Catholic, uh, but mm. I think I probably went through the same experience as you, which is that I would go to mass
1: mm. before
0: I went to school in the morning wow, at the convent. Really? Yes,
1: every morning
0: when I was between about the age of thirteen and fifteen, mm. till I discovered girls. Right, uh, and then well, I discovered them, but I couldn't get near them. Right. But I would go to to mass in the morning and sit right at the front
1: Mm.
0: in my school uniform, very cleanly pruned and primmed up and everything. Yeah. And I could feel the eyes of the nuns on my back. Really? So, for me, it was all... Judging you? No, it was a performance. I I could feel the admiration of this beautiful little boy... He's come here and he's sitting there and he's saying everything so clearly and so That's well. That's so brilliant. And so, yeah, yes. that whole thing of doing a performance in Performative
1: church. Performative holiness. Yes. Yeah. Not I, feeling
0: holy at all. Really. I do. I
1: I think one of my associations with going to synagogue, even now, actually, is because because I like you, I love singing. And there's a lot of singing in Judaism. And um, I could actually manage to keep up with the songs because when you're following the Hebrew in a song it it moves slower yes. than if you're trying to read it in a prayer when people tend to rattle through it and I can't do that. So I could join in with the songs and I could do harmonies and things. <laughs> and I do I do remember kind of thinking, I'm not sure how much this is holy and how much is actually just me showing up <laughs> <laughs> that I can do harmonies. Yeah. And then thinking, Well if I believe in God then Maybe it was God who taught me to do the harmonies, so that's are. okay. Then i does them back. even louder, <laughs> show off even more,
0: and I'll spend longer doing my hair. Yes, yeah, I'm
1: putting my posh clothes on. Oh, yeah. There is. I mean, of course, there is an element. and I think there always was in group religion of people wearing their Sunday best yes. and people showing the best their best face. And there's that wonderful thing, isn't there, in Father Ted, the, the couple in that the dreadfully sort of abusive marriage yeah. who. Stop hitting each other the minute the priest walks in. Ah, father! Okay. Oh, it's so good to see you, father. And I love that that side of it. You know that we all know that actually what we present in church or in sh- synagogue or whatever is is in no way reflective of the way we actually live our lives. No, no. Yeah, in in, in a Catholic bit.
0: mass uh, every Sunday, the church would empty of men immediately after communion. Mm-hmm. So once they actually got the bread and they had eaten the body of Christ mm. and therefore been blessed that was good enough for them and, the and in pub. fact they quite often would have a little slight taste of sherry at that point and that would immediately make them rush to the pub Right. so all the men would go and they would go straight to the pub and right. then the women would come out afterwards and hang around the priest like, <laughs> like Beatles fans
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, that all sounds very familiar. I think, mm.
0: ultimately, it's, <laughs> it's
1: all the same the world over.
0: Yes. Oh, that's lovely. So let's take that. That's a gorgeous moment.
1: <laughs> lovely. So you
0: can sit with your mum and dad and <laughs> yeah. your brother.
1: Platting the fringes on. Platting on fringes. That's special. <laughs> <Right? very>
0: sure. <laughs> so what's your second <laughs> item?
1: My second one. OK, this would be quite, quite different, um, but it's, it's one that you will definitely associate with. We talked a minute ago about singing, and I've done a couple of musicals not not a huge number but uh, but I've always loved musical theatre and always sort of dreamt of being in a musical and then some years ago and this was oh gosh probably about 25 30 years ago something like that I had the opportunity to meet Sam Mendes after a recording of something I'd done a tv show and Sam was there and I introduced myself to him afterwards and in a slightly kind of post-show, I've just downed a glass of wine and I'm feeling a bit sort of silly. <laughs> I just kind of went, oh, I love everything you've done and i just <laughs> love to be in something of yours. And I think at the time he had Oliver on in the West End. Yes. I think that's what I was angling. He was for, already
0: a huge director. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah. Uh, and, and his only, he's what my age a year older than me or something yes. at that stage he'd he made it big very very quickly mm. and he of course knew who I was because he'd just seen me in this recording so yes. he knew that I could do comedy and so on so we have this brief chat and he said oh yeah well I you know I know your work and it'd be great to work with you and I said and I sing as well um, <laughs> and he said he said great well we're we're doing a Christmas show at the Mar, maybe come and audition so the next morning I rang my agent and said I'm like, no, just I spoke to Sam Mendes, and he said I should come and audition, and he followed through on it. So they, the wow. Donmar, got in touch with my agent, and they said, you know, do you want to, does Rebecca want to come and audition? And I auditioned for a company which was <clears throat> going to be the Christmas show, and got a part. And so suddenly there I was, doing not just my first theatre show, my first professional theatre show, but working with Sam Mendes and in a musical, a Sondheim musical, and it was just like. All yeah, your dreams all had come true. All my through. dreams come true. And it ended up, in fact, we did, because we went to the West End as well, we ended up doing nine months of it. Um, so it's like a pregnancy. And it was just <laughs> one of the best jobs ever. I mean, it really was a dream job. I met so many wonderful people, many of whom have, have remained friends for all these years, like Sophie Thompson and Clive Rowe, mm. just people who I absolutely adore. So for time capsule purposes... I was trying to think about a, you know, a career moment that wasn't to do with telly specifically because I think that's probably I'm slightly more known for doing telly stuff and that's that's mainly what I've done. Mm. And I suddenly thought about the opening number of Company, which of course we did, oh, you know, hundreds, thousands of times over the course of 9 months, which is anyway a brilliant piece of musical theatre. It's, yes. it's the most wonderful song. But the way it was staged at the Donmar, which which is in the round, um, for people who haven't been there. So Sam had us kind of popping out of doorways unexpectedly and running around this walkway above the audience's heads and calling to each other across this gantry. And it was sort of very dynamic and very exciting. And it's a very exciting song and it has great harmonies. And we all had little solo moments in it and everything. And every night it would get this... Whoop at the end of it because it's so energising. And you come to the end of this number, and there'd be a sort of momentary lull, and then whoa from oh. the audience because they're just thinking this is going to be good. We've yeah. now got two and a half hours of good show in front of us.
0: And that song is sort of almost a musical in itself. Sort of the whole musical encapsulates. Yeah, it? it
1: tells you everything you need to know really about Bobby and his and mm. the, the friendships that he has established. And and you already, I think, start to see the cracks in those friendships, the sort of the fishes that are gonna cause problems as the show goes on. But just an incredibly exciting thing to be a part of. And that would definitely be one of my time capsule moments. Doing that show and that brief pause at the end of the number. And then the, whoa, from the audience every night. There's nothing like that. I mean, you know, because you've done musicals.
0: I have, but uh, you don't often experience that. Right. I mean, you experience people, uh, audiences enjoying shows. Mm. But to get that moment where they absolutely realise that this is probably going to be the most exciting night that they've been to for years. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. I did do a musical of It's a Wonderful Life, mm. written by Steve Brown. Yes. And that had exactly that thing at the end.
1: Mm. My it, husband, the, Phil, brought the kids to see it. I think yes. I was away. Mm. Um, and he was talking about it recently and said how really? wonderful it was. Yeah.
0: But it had that extraordinary thing that where you become almost used to it where we would finish and then there would be this pause and then the audience would erupt yeah. and stand up. Yes. And, and, and to get amazing. a standing ovation is so yeah. We got it so often. One night, there was one man in the front mm-hmm. about three weeks into this run that, um, and he didn't stand and we, the whole of us <laughs> were so affronted Outrage. by this. How could, <laughs> And then very slowly, he grabbed two sticks and oh. pushed himself up oh. and then waved his sticks in the air. And we all burst into tears, of course, because it was so beautiful.
1: But, yeah, we used to... We, I remember that that same feeling that... Because um, we would get standing evasions most nights, and mm. now being competitive with you, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but well, yes, well, we But, yes we'd, okay. sli- <laughs> we'd be slightly... We'd be slightly <laughs> affronted if somebody didn't... Yeah. And you'd always spot the person in the fourth row off to the left who wasn't standing, who was kind of going, Nah, eh, not for me. <laughs> and the whole, the whole cast, and it was quite a big cast, would come off stage and go, did you see him? Did you what a dreadful... I mean, what could you possibly jumper. have done? Disgusting
0: thing jumper he was wearing <laughs>
1: was so, but that is exactly so that, that
0: feeling you were saying earlier about being an actor mm. and, and even though everything's going well you yeah. think oh this is the last time I'm going to work absolutely and yeah. so you notice the person who didn't quite love yeah, of it of course you do yes. it's terrible
1: isn't it and I don't think audiences notice that I mean I think they're not you're, you're not aware how how brightly lit you are as an audience member and that actually we do we can see you yeah okay? we do know what you're thinking and if you're not laughing we know you're not laughing yeah. As a as an actor, when I now go to shows, I'm acutely aware that the people I know in the show, or even the people who might just know that I'm an actor, will will know. In fact, yeah. I remember I have an awful confession to make, which is that I went to a show a couple of years ago. Friends got us tickets to see something at the Barbican. And I'm not a big drinker. I mean, I love, I love a glass of wine or a cocktail or something, but usually it's like I'll have a drink and that's that's <clears> me done. And I... So you can hear the builders banging downstairs. Um, I made the mistake before this show at the Barbican of having two dry martinis. I never have two dry martinis. So one dry martini, fine, then I would have, you know, sort of been relaxed and enjoyed the show. But two was a disaster because I didn't realise that Phil had booked his tickets in the second row back. And I couldn't stay awake. No, could not stay. And it was actually really good. I mean, it was a very good production. And I, yeah, I just—it was that horrible thing where I thought, "Oh my god!" I know that they that they've clocked that there are actors in.
0: You do. You you always. You you always always notice them. Yeah.
1: And we were right near the front, and I just couldn't. I was just going. My head was dropping. (gasps) And then it was horrible, and I felt so awful. I wanted to. I felt like emailing afterwards to the stage management or something and saying, can I do it? And then I thought, no, that's so incredibly... Because a they might not have noticed, yeah. and b that's I'm sorry, who is she? It's all about Rebecca Front. Rebecca, yes. you've Rebecca? Rebecca, who? No, uh, I don't. i never watched you, but now I know that she didn't enjoy it. Has she done the any theatre? <laughs> so not much. I decided wisely, no. de- wisely decided against it. Um, but yeah, just felt awful because you know when you're when you've been on stage, mm. and I haven't done very much stage at all. But you know, you still you know that you know what's going on, and you know when people are bored, and you know when they're not getting the jokes. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I, felt I, I still feel very guilty about
0: that. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because actors generally blame the audience in those situations. And yeah. um, my wife is always always tells me off if I ever do that. Yeah. Because she says, so just as a complete mess, they all decided not to like it. Yeah. Is that right? So it wouldn't be down to the fact that you're not as good as you were last yeah. night?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, I think I tried to take that attitude when I was doing more theatre that I would sort of try to think, well, actually, no, It surely that doesn't make any sense for it to just be a bad audience. I think sometimes there are circumstantial things like maybe the sound isn't quite as good one night or maybe it's a bit cold in the theatre or a bit hot in the Mm theatre. There are things like that which can affect a whole audience. Yes. But, yeah, I think by and large you have to think we're probably a bit slow tonight or we're just not quite gelling.
0: You think you're doing the same thing, but you're just not. Maybe Mm. you're just doing it by numbers. Yeah. Which means that it's dead.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and people do pick up on that. Mm. But then it's also odd, and you all have had this experience as well, when something goes in your mind catastrophically wrong and absolutely nobody in the audience seems to notice, and that's <laughs> no. quite weird. So there is there is a kind of group thing somehow, I think, that with audiences that you just... I suppose because you don't know the material as well. No. You do get swayed by people next to you loving it, and and so there is, there is a sort of... Um, snowballing effect yes. if somebody if there's a group in the front who aren't enjoying it that will slightly affect the people behind them and the people because there's a
0: barrier them. between them and the stage yeah. of, of nothing yeah, yeah. And it's not or, or alternatively you get somebody who over enjoys it who yes. finds it overly funny yes. and you think no give it a chance you know yeah. you're laughing at everything uproariously Absolutely. Uh, i've done panto with that there were a family that we called the uh, we called them the jollies right. and they would come every year and sit in the same seats and then laugh hysterically at everything. <laughs> everything. Hello.
1: <laughs> and I just said hello. It's not funny it yet. So brilliant. And, and was, you can't ban them, can it, you? No. You're enjoying this too much, you <laughs> bastards.
0: Well, it, they eventually stopped coming when the, the uh, comic in the show just went, What is wrong with you people? you laugh at everything i mean it would be great fun to be in your house you said yeah so oh look the dog's dead <laughs> hang on i've got cancer <laughs> this is in a panto oh he just God. lost it really yeah and they it never came but again. they did laugh hysterically at him taking the mickey out of them and so did the rest of the audience because they realized that finally we were admitting that i know these people are a pain
1: <laughs> oh my goodness we had the reverse thing once, years ago, when I was in a double act with Sean Ed William, we used to do these, um, these sketch and musical shows. And in very, very small fringe venues, you know. And of course, you really want people to laugh in that. You know, you really, really need <sighs> to create an environment where people feel safe to laugh because you're very exposed in a venue like that. Um, and I remember inviting a friend of ours from who we knew from university, who was a lovely guy, but he had a slightly odd sense of humour and he took our work very seriously. He was quite a serious guy himself. And he was very much of the opinion that our sketch show was art. It was, it was you know, a creative process. And people needed to be quite reverential towards it. He was very <laughs> respectful to it. And I remember realising it was a terrible mistake to have got him a free ticket and sat him in the front row. Because every time people laughed, he'd turn around and glare at them. <laughs> Do you mind? They've, they've spent ages crafting this. is
0: a beautifully written joke.
1: And you've just completely, you've squashed it now because you laughed too soon. And he really, it just, it squashed the whole show oh, no. flat. And we knew from about the beginning of the first sketch, we thought, oh, we're in trouble here. Big we're mistake. In terrible trouble. And people were kind of glaring and nudging each other. Why things. did you marry him? <laughs> <laughs> You no, I wanted to be taken seriously, Mike, what can I say?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. So we're going to take that that beautiful, uh, weighted silence yes. before the explosion of the audience. Yes. And that's in there. At can, any we, moment can we
1: allow can... the explosion of the audience as well? Because otherwise you it could, could just be going, a horrible you're silence. We're going to then do,
0: do one of those terrible BBC fades where it just yes. disappears yeah. away. But you'll get the start of it.
1: Okay, but that's you know, all
0: right. So you can sit there and have that tension, that moment. Is yes. it going to happen? Yes, yes,
1: it's happened again. Yes, that's <laughs> all, all I want. Right. Basically, if you can just give me the applause, I'll take that in the time capsule. I'm quite happy with just a okay. soundtrack of some
0: applause. Just going on yeah. and on and on. Oh, no, please, <laughs> please, I can't bow anymore. And
1: occasional voices of people going, "Isn't she amazing?" <laughs> that's, I'd be quite happy with that.
0: <laughs> I'll put together a tape and send it to you. Good, thank you. <laughs> oh, Good. fantastic. So we move on to number three, the third item you would like to Um, lock in this time capsule.
1: Yes. Okay. well, we'll, let's let's go quiet with it then. Let's Mm go um, because we've just been sitting in an audience. So we need to get out and get some fresh air. And we now uh, have a dog, as you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and rarely an interview goes by when I don't mention this dog because I'm obsessed with him. (laughs) He's the love of my life. Um, But anyway, the reason we now have a dog, because I was not a dog person at all. I'm not, you know, I didn't grow up with dogs. For years and years and years, I would just say I'm not a big fan. If anything, I'm slightly scared of them. They're a bit yappy. I don't quite get them. They jump at you. So I really wasn't a big fan. And what changed was that our friends, Martin and Sue, who live down in Somerset, we spend a lot of time with them. Yeah. Um, they got a dog. And Sue, like me, was not a dog person. In fact, she used to be quite sneery about other people in Somerset who had their dog with them. Um, you know, wherever so people would sort of turn up at the house and say, oh, can we bring the dog in? And Sue uh, would think, oh, really? Really? And, um, so, no, I'm with her. So, I, well, I always was as well. And then when they got a dog... Um, I kind of thought, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what's what's persuaded them. And she clearly had gone quite dewy-eyed very quickly about their dog. He was called Monty, and he was a Lurcher. Um, so we went down to visit, and I was sort of all ready to try and you know put on a polite face and be nice about Monty. But there was something about Monty that just completely beguiled me from the minute I first met him. <laughs> he wasn't a pretty dog. He was sort of you know Lurchers are they're interesting and rather noble-looking, but they're not sort of warm and cuddly and cute looking. No,
0: they don't look as if they're smiling, do they? No, they
1: look like wolves, actually. They're sort of very, you know, very lupine. So he didn't, uh, it wasn't like an instant kind of, oh, what a cute little thing. But there was something about him that I just thought, oh, I like you, I like the cut of your jib. You know, he felt like a, like he understood stuff. He looked rather wise and sensible. Um, and that was when he was a puppy. And then as we got to know him a bit more, he just became more and more like a sort of, like a wise Mr. Badger kind of character, <laughs> and absolutely became a linchpin in our family. So we'd go to, to stay with these friends or to visit them three or four times a year. Mm. And as we got to know Monty a bit better, Martin and Sue would say, well, listen, if you, if you want, you and the kids can take Monty out for a walk without us, you know, because we've got work to do or whatever. So... Sometimes Monty would come for walks with us, sometimes we'd stay in a holiday cottage where, which was dog-friendly so that Monty could actually come and stay for a few nights. And Monty became our sort of surrogate dog. And as far as the kids were concerned, Tilly, um, like me, I think was a little bit nervous at the beginning and then grew to just absolutely love him. Ollie developed this bond with him where he genuinely would say, I think Monty is, is sort of my brother. He's mm. my, my dog brother. He just had this absolute cast iron bond with Monty they understood each other they there was just there was a real sense of you know I don't believe in reincarnation but if I did Monty undoubtedly would have would have been connected to Ollie in some way so anyway Monty became a sort of massive part of our lives um and that's why ultimately we decided a few years ago because the kids have been nagging and nagging and, and we sort of thought you know what maybe we should get a dog cuz Maybe we need that in our lives. Maybe Mm. that would be a wonderful thing to come home from work every day and have this creature who's just desperate to see you. Mm. And it has been. It's proved to be um, kind of life-changing. It's just a wonderful thing. Anyway, the the sad part of all this is dear old Monty died last year. He was finally um, sort of sent packing because Mm. life had become fairly unbearable for him. But not before he changed uh, not just their lives but our lives. And he... It's, it sort of goes deeper, I think, than just the fact that he made us want to have our own dog. I mean, mm. he absolutely informed the kids' development into adults. So we would take him on these immensely long walks when both children were really far too young to be doing kind of eight-mile walks. But we'd do it because Monty was there and because if Monty wanted to do it, then we'd do it. Yeah. Um, so that would be my time capsule memory, I think, would be of of one of these walks with... The four of us, me, Phil, Ollie, Tilly and Monty. Mm. And the time capsule thing in particular that I'd want is there's a walk that we do just near where Martin and Sue live where there's um, there's, you sort of climb up a, a slope going through a wood. You sort of climb up this track higher and higher and higher. When you get to the top, you come out into a clearing and there's quite a wide brook. That is slightly too. There's a little sort of uh, rickety bridge that goes across it, and I would always use the bridge because I'm very sensible, <laughs> in middle aged. Um, but Ollie, when he certainly when he was younger, would always leg it across this brook because you could just about if you took enough of a run up, you could yeah. do it. And Monty, being a lurcher, would do this as if it was. It was like watching Nureyev. It was the oh. most beautiful, balletic thing to just see him. Running without any, there's no sense of him planning, you know, I need a bit of a run up or anything. He'd just, he'd run and then he'd take off and he'd be suspended for a second in midair. And then he'd just very gently land and glide off. And then Ollie would follow him. And that would be my snapshot, I think, is of Monty in midair and Ollie about to launch himself and me on the rickety bridge going, Ollie, be careful! <laughs> it, would be that, <laughs> it would be that moment. Because, of course, inevitably there were one or two times when Ollie misjudged it and it's, ended yeah. up, you know, with one leg completely... <laughs> with submerged only four water. miles to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely drenched and covered in mud. Children do have people. an
0: affinity with animals that we are reticent to allow to happen, I think, as adults. Mm. you become more yeah. But children were just uh, taken straight in. And they, yeah. my, my children, uh, their grandparents had a my wife's parents had a dog called Sam which mm. was a golden retriever. It was a mm. lovely dog, very gentle. And they do have that face that looks as if it's sort of slightly smirking yes. all the time, you know, and slightly apologetic. And yeah. then they put their head down and say, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to bump into you. Yeah. And that, yeah. I remember that moment exactly with my children going for a walk and they were too small and they were, my daughter was holding the lead and the dog got to the point where it would normally be let off the lead and run into mm. the field. And it was so excited that it ran, but she hadn't taken it off the lead and it dragged her along the ground. <sighs> And then for days afterwards, Sam just followed her around and just sort of kept going up behind her and just putting his head right down and, in a way, almost subjugating himself
1: to her as an apology. Yeah.
0: He he just didn't forget it. Mm. And that's extraordinary, isn't it? He felt so guilty. Oh my God, I didn't mean to do that. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You could almost hear the voice in his head.
1: That's incredibly touching. It really is. Yeah. No, they are. I mean, I remember coming back from one of these walks with Monty. It was a fairly short walk until he was quite little at that time. And somewhere along the walk, she and Ollie had had a, a little falling out about something really stupid. You know, like a, Brothers and yeah, sisters. Like a suite or something. I don't know. It you was know, some yeah. really silly something and nothing, but she got quite bothered about it. Um, and we went back and we took the dog back to Martin and Susan. We sat down for a cup of tea until he was, she wasn't crying, but she was just a bit quiet because she'd had a bit of, you know, a bit of a falling out. And Monty just knew. And he, whereas he would normally tend to gravitate more towards Ollie, he just wouldn't leave her side. No. And kept sort of going and putting his chin on her lap. And and it was incredibly touching. He just absolutely knew there's something not right here. I don't know what it is, but that, that one, the little one with yes. the curls, she's she's not right today, so I've had to look after her. Another thing that Monty used to do, which, again, all dogs do, I think, I, you know, certainly our, our Bailey does it, When you're on a walk, if somebody's lagging behind, Monty would always try and round you all up. So he'd get to the top of a hill and then he'd run back and make sure that the next person and the next person and the next person would all get to the top. Stay together, stay together. Forward until... There are lupines coming. Yes, (laughs) lupine, volpines. (laughs) Yes. So he was very sort of protective that way. But when you've got small... Children or even sort of young teenagers who are who are just getting to that point where they're thinking, what is the point of this walk? What is the point of it? Why are you making me do this on a Sunday afternoon when I could be indoors watching telly? Um, that's enchanting to have this animal, yes, this non-verbal creature going. I need you. I need you for me to enjoy this walk. I need you here now. So yeah. come on, I'm kind of I'm going to run back down this hill and get you and bring you up to the top of the hill with me. And it never failed. And now they still, I'm glad to say that, you know, they're 18 and 21, our kids. And uh, they love nothing better than going on a walk. Mm. It's, it's all, I think, as a result of, of Monty and this sheer unadulterated joy of being with him.
0: Imagine trying to persuade them to do that as teenagers with no dog. Yeah. It's not going to work, is Absolutely. it?
1: Absolutely. That's right. Well, like, it would work with Tilly as she got older when we'd go shopping. <laughs> so we could, we're going to we walk to the clock shops up. yeah clock up oh, quite a big up, step count and going yeah. shopping In fact, I once wrote a piece for. I was asked to do a travel piece for, um, for a newspaper um, and I said oh you know I'd quite like to do a sort of walking holiday thing and they said yeah that sounds good and then I thought I know what would be great because they were offering they were saying do you want to go to Sydney you know do you want to <laughs> wow. and I was thinking no I don't like flying very much I'll do something a bit closer to home um, and then I suddenly thought I know what I'll do I'll say we'll do a shopping walking holiday in rome and they they went for it it was great so i took tilly on a shopping walking tour of rome we didn't buy anything apart from lunch we couldn't afford (laughs) anything at all not on the what they were paying me for the travel piece um but it was brilliant we just did we did about seven miles walking every day for three days but we walked around the forum and we walked around the shops and we walked around you know just rome and it was really, really good fun. It's Locked great, up. isn't it, Rome, Massive. for that? Yeah. You
0: can just walk around it. Yeah. Although I made the mistake of remembering from my teenage years that the Appian Way was accessible from the centre of Rome. Right. And I persuaded my wife that this was the case. And so we started walking. And 15 miles later, yes. we finally reached the cobbles.
1: Yes, so, we had exactly the same experience with Sean Ed, my old double partner. We did exactly the same thing years ago, Sean Ed and her husband and, and me and Phil. And Sarned was going, it's the happy Way. It's the happy Way, we've got to do it. <laughs> and exactly that, after about five miles, we were all going, OK, we are so done with this. <laughs> it's boiling hot. Taxi, it's August. Taxi! There are no taxis. No, no. We're now just stuck on this path. There's nothing here. <laughs> we might as well be on the North Circular.
0: And I absolutely going. remembered it as a, as a young man seeing the Appian Way go off up into the into the hill. Happy
1: children, skipping about. And you think
0: it's a genuine Roman road. There are great slabs and it goes away, just like you used to draw it with the slice through it at school.
1: Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the slice through it. I know exactly what you, you know mean. know what I mean by that. Yeah, yep, I think I've still got those exercise books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my oh, word. Dear. Oh, a well, lovely Monty. <laughs> Lovely, Lovely Monty. Monty. I
0: can picture him now. Oh, just... He was
1: he's just a uh, he a dream dog. We were terribly upset when when dear old Monty left us last year, and and we did really genuinely feel like we'd lost our dog, even though he wasn't. He was never no. ours. He was always Martin and Sue's. But he had a just a particular bond, I think, with with our family because we'd spent so much time with him.
0: But mm. so. well, we're going to put Monty leaping the brook. Yes. with Ollie. Jumping Hot behind pursuit. him, and you being slightly pensive yes. on the bridge.
1: Yeah, that's that
0: it. The oh, that might be the, my next play: pensive on the bridge.
1: Oh yeah, I like that. Mm. Can I play pensive?
0: Yes, I'll be the bridge. In it goes into the time capsule. Excellent. So that's three things we've had. Very now. good. We're rattling through them. Before we go on to the next item, here's a quick advert. We'll be back in a minute.
2: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Okay, we're back. Let's find out the thing that Rebecca would really like to get rid of by burying it in the time capsule.
1: So, yes, negative snapshot um, for the time capsule. This is something, in fact, that I've, I've written about and talked about quite widely, although for, for years and years I didn't talk about it at all. But um, I went through a phase when I was school phobic um, when I was 11 and it was uh, it, it was not fun. Turns out, who knew? Mm. You would think that not going to school for long periods of time would be an absolute hoot, but actually, it was it was very very uh, gloomy and not fun at all. Um, And the background to it just sort of was that I grew up in an area where we still had grammar schools, so you still had to do the eleven plus exam, and you know everybody wanted to get into these grammar schools. Mm. Um, And I was lucky enough to to get into one of the local grammar schools, there were two. And there was one that was a little bit further away from home and that was the one, Every it was a girl's grammar and all the girls wanted to go there. It was very, considered a very, very prestigious school. And I, I got a place there, so that was brilliant. So then in the summer holiday running up to that, I was all excited about going and I had my uniform and everything. We went off to Yorkshire for the summer holiday and we, it was a very hot day and we went for a picnic by the banks of a river, the River Wharf, I think it was, and my dad and my brother were paddling in the river and my dad got his foot caught, he thinks, in the roots of a tree. And there was obviously a kind of whirlpool created by the root system of this tree. And he lost his balance trying to pull his foot out and, and almost drowned. I wow. mean, it was by the time he was pulled out of the river, he was barely conscious. So it really was touch and go whether, you know, th- there was a, a moment when I think everybody on the riverbank thought he was dead. And um, you so, witnessed this. And we saw it. My mum and I were sitting with the picnic stuff. And we could see my brother in the distance kind of waving at us. Uh, well, they were both waving. And then we noticed it was just Gem waving. And then we realised he wasn't... and I mean, it really was like the, the Stevie Smith thing. He wasn't waving. Dad was drowning. Mm. So we got up and we just legged it and tried to run. I remember sort of glancing down and seeing there was blood pouring from my foot because we, I didn't have any shoes on and we were just running across, you know, earth and rocks and and... And in the distance, we could see they weren't far from us, but there was a bend in the river, so we had to kind of round this bend in order to get to them. And there was all the, there were these snapshots of things going on while we were running. Um, and I can remember somebody trying to go in, and then somebody else shouting, "I can't reach him!" and and my brother oh, was Lord. trying to pull him out. And my brother, I think, was about fourteen at the time, and just could just couldn't get couldn't pull him physically pull him out. Um, it was horrendous. It was really awful. And then the two sort of miracles that happened were as we rounded the bend and we were getting much closer to where Jem, my brother, was at this, at this point was on the riverbank, mm-hmm. was just sort of hysterical. As we got there, I remember these three guys w- pulling off their T-shirts and, and just shouting something like, one, one of them said something like, booger this, because it was Yorkshire. Um, and they ran in, they just waded in. And they obviously decided, Right, we are not letting this happen. No. So they pulled him out, these three strong guys, just hoiked my dad out and dumped him on the riverbank. And then, second miracle, a woman suddenly appeared and said, I'm a nurse, let me let me get to him and Good she Lord. turned him on his side and she whacked him and got water out of his lungs and he just sat up and went, All right, <laughs> it's oh. absolutely fine. Oh my word. But it was absolutely traumatic. Um, How old were you, sorry? I was 11. I was coming up to 11, that's oh, right. So word. I was about to start... Two weeks later, I was due to start secondary school. So anyway, we, we stayed on holiday. We were, for The next day, we were all in shock. Um, and it was... You know, we discussed whether we should go home, and my dad said, no, no, no I'm fine, and I think we, it would be better for us to be here. So we stayed, and we had a nice day, and we all tried to kind of calm down. And then the following day, we got a phone call saying my grandfather had died. Oh. So it was... It was just these two, and I was very close to my grandfather, so it was these two horrible things that happened very close to each other. Then we, got, we drove back to London and we had this horrible, you know, awful drive back. My mother, obviously, heartbroken. And, mm. um, we drove back. Jewish funerals happened very soon after the death, so we had the funeral the following week and, um, you know, and the shiver you know, where people come to the house every night. So it was all, all of this was happening, and then I had to start this new school, And I just couldn't do it. So I started school um, and I think at the beginning seemed to be okay, But actually what had got into my head was was that somehow um, this was all because I took my eye off the ball and that it was because I wasn't if I'd been if I'd been there with dad, he wouldn't have nearly drowned. And if I'd been at home in London with my grandfather, he wouldn't have died. It was all obviously because I wasn't keeping an eye on them. It's Mm. a very sort of narcissistic 11-year-old thinking. So I decided that I couldn't go to school because if I walked away from my mum, if I got the bus to school, then something was going to happen to her. Obviously, you know, death was working his way through the family and clearly it was going to be her next. So I had to just be at home with mum. And actually, obviously, what was going on was that I just I was terrified and I yes. was in shock and I really needed a bit of therapy. Mm. But in back in, in those days, nobody really thought like that. So that was the background to it. And and it reached a point where I would I was going to school sometimes. And then I was having what I now understand to be panic attacks and having to come home. And other days I couldn't go in at all. Um And then some days I'd go in and I'd be fine, actually, and I'd have a really nice day. And then the next day I couldn't do it. And it got worse and worse and it reached a point where in the end I just left the school and was homeschooled for a while Mm -hmm. until uh, I got a place at a different... at the other grammar school, nearer to home, where there just happened to be... I mean, actually, to to be fair, there were a couple of teachers at the original school who were trying to help, but they didn't really quite understand what was going on. Neither did I. But there happened to be a wonderful deputy head teacher at the new school who just sorted it, just took me under her wing and said, right, we're going to make this work. We're going to, it's all going to be fine. And within about a week of starting at the new school, she got the whole thing under control. She knew how to handle me. She knew what was going through my mind and she'd sorted it. And I was back in schooling and I never looked back after that. No. So the snapshot of that the negative snapshot I think would be when I think back to that period, I think about being at the first school, the first grammar school, and what would happen was that I would first of all I'd try everything I could not to go to school at all in the mornings. I mean literally I'd be throwing my shoes out of the bedroom window and screaming and mm. and being sick and all these things that that by rights should mean I didn't go to school. That's you can't it, go you to school go. if you vomited, you can't go mm. to school if you've got no shoes. So I'd be doing all that kind of stuff in in a, you know, hysterical manner. This wasn't calculating. This was just me thinking, I can't do this. You can't make me do this. Um, But sometimes, somehow, miraculously, my parents would get me to the school Mm. and they'd walk me in and then then I'd get sort of swept up in that thing of being around my friends and that, that would be okay. But then there'd be a certain point every day when I'd... Suddenly, think I can't. I can't do this. I just can't be here because I should be at home keeping an eye on my mum. Right. And at that point, I'd have to go to the sick room because I would genuinely feel sick, yep. feel and get a stomach ache and just feel, you know, ill. Um. So my abiding memory of being at that school for, in the end, a term. I was only there for a term. Was of being in the sick room. Yeah. And they put me in there, and I just kind of lie on this couch. And there'd be a clock and I'd be looking at the clock, watching the seconds ticking away and there was nothing to do. And I was bored, but I was also feeling sick and feeling terrified and mm. there was no one to talk to. Torrible. And it was just an outside. Of course, you could hear I'd hear people playing hockey and I'd hear, you know, the bell going and people walking down the corridors. And I'd just be sitting there thinking what next you know like what do i do now no so i think that becomes rather
0: desperate doesn't it really
1: desperate yeah it was it was awful because i didn't know the answer and nobody knew the answer and the more i could see the anxiety in everybody's eyes you know my my parents and the teachers and everybody Mm. sort of looking at each other like what what do we do i don't know how do we get around this i don't know what we do now the more i saw that the more scared i got because i just thought well that they're not in control either. So.
0: so at the age of 11, suddenly you had the fragility of life yeah. thrust in front of you yeah. and became incredibly aware of it.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and sort and of panic. trying to take control of it. I think that's what it was, was mm. I was thinking, well, I'm nearly a grown-up now. I'm about to go to secondary school, so I need to be able to control this. Right. This, this sort of random narrative that's happened yes. in the space of a week where we've lost one member of the family and nearly lost another. And nobody seems to be in control here. Nobody seems to, you know, so it better be me because yeah. I'm nearly a grown-up now. And it's obviously something's changed and it's probably my fault um, because that, of course, is what kids think. It's, yeah. it's therefore all, or they're the ones who've got the answers. Mm. Um, it was It was very... I mean, I look back on it now, I suppose as you do when you get older and you've had a bit of therapy, I look back on it and I think, well, it was quite valuable, actually. It was all quite useful because it meant that I explored a lot of quite dark thoughts and thought processes very young yes i went through that was in a way that was sort of my teenage rebellion i didn't have a teenage rebellion because i kind of done all that when i was 11 i'd gone through the you're all you're all idiots you people who think you're adults you don't know anything And what's the point anyway what's the point of all i'd done all that when i was 11 so there was a value to it undoubtedly you know nothing nothing is without value in life and it certainly has informed my work, actually. It's informed my acting work. I think it, you know, it gave me a, an early insight into thought processes and how, how everybody's thought processes have a kind of logic to them. However bizarre they appear from the outside, there's a kind of logic to it. And that, of course, as an actor, is immensely valuable. Yes. When you're playing someone who's behaving rationally or indeed wickedly, you need to know that they don't see it as irrational and wicked. No. They, there's a perfect logic to them in what they're doing so as far as you know, for me as an 11 year old thinking death was out to get my family and I was the only person who could protect us that made perfect sense to me yes. there was nothing illogical about that at all it's only when you look back on it and you think oh boy <laughs> was, you'd really gone to a dark place You know.
0: so anyway. is that also fed into the idea of because a lot of people find the idea of acting quite frightening mm. the idea of doing something in public in front of people I couldn't stand up there and do that yeah. that's what people say So if you find yourself in that situation or find yourself in a a situation that's frightening, are you able to delve back into that, being able to control it, being able to conquer it?
1: Um, I think that's a really interesting question, because to me, the two things are unconnected in in that sense. They're very connected in the sense that, as I I just said, you know, about um, understanding thought processes. Mm. But they're unconnected in that at the time I wasn't able to... Uh, control the appearance of my anxiety, mm. and now I am. But maybe that's the connection, is that at the time I couldn't, and now I can. Yes. So so now I can be very anxious and not show it, and, and when I was 11, I couldn't do that. because Because no. w- if I was scared, I, I also thought it made sense. I thought it was logical to be scared. I couldn't understand why other people weren't scared as well. No. So there was... Um,
0: I had that experience in a pantomime. Uh, I'm always getting back to pantomime, I'm afraid. It must be my life. But uh, I did um, The Wizard of Oz, Mm. and I played the Scarecrow. And the pantomime starts, as many pantomimes do, with the witch appearing on stage Mm. in green light and a flash, great bang, and then she suddenly screeches and laughs manically. And... uh, She did this every performance, and some children would find it a bit frightening. But once, one child leapt from their seat right at the front and ran down the aisle. Uh And then halfway down, this child stopped and looked back at the audience. And in a pause on stage, this child went, It's a witch! Oh! So not only was this child terrified, but it had the bravery to stop and try and save everyone else. Do you not realise this is a witch run for god's sake
1: that's incredible
0: so for a little child that logic is 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 completely sound
1: yeah why can you not see this when i can see it what's wrong with you all? yeah that's extraordinary isn't it Bless I mean, him. From a cynical perspective, I bet the person who was playing the witch was delighted. Oh, gosh, gotcha. <laughs> <Just like>, I, <laughs> I mean, am a witch. i to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> totally in character. I don't know how I did it that night, but I just, I was I in was the zone. Terrifying, darling. <laughs> terrifying. Just Maybe it was the green makeup. Who no. <laughs> no, I don't think it was. I think it was something it I was giving on It was in me. me. <laughs> <laughs> the awful thing is we both know that's how we would have thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the one hand, I thought, oh, that's terrible. Like, Poor little
0: child. God, and I'm only, good.
1: God, I'm good. <laughs> I've really got it. <laughs> Still got it going on.
0: Oh, dear. Uh,
1: anyway, yes. It's, uh, it's that, that, <laughs> is a,
0: that moment of sitting in that room, feeling ill, feeling terrified, mm. it's a horrible thing. Yeah. I mean, you really want to take you as a little 11-year-old girl and just cuddle you and yes. just say, Oh it's it's, it's all okay. right. It's not your fault.
1: Yeah, I think
0: Which of course is what that um the deputy headmistress did eventually.
1: Yeah, she did. Well she she did this brilliant thing where she um when I I went for my interview at the next school, um they'd already you know, they'd offered me a place but they obviously kind of wanted to know what what had gone on, you know, why why this person had gone to this school that everybody regarded as a better school and was suddenly sort and of refusing failed. to go and it was mm. So she and the head teacher kind of call, called me in and, with my mum and, and I was already in tears because I was already thinking I'm not going to be able to do this. And it all was very, it, it became very sort of heightened and very agitated. And, um, and in fact, there was a moment when I tried to run away and my mum uh, opened the door of the headmistress's office and tried to drag me back in. And then the deputy head appeared and I apparently was seen kicking her because I was in a panic attack, you know. Mm. And they got me back into the head head teacher's office. And they calmed me down a bit. But at that point the, the head teacher said to me sorry, the deputy head um said, Look, you know, let's just let's just calm down for a minute here. What what is it you're frightened of? And I said, I I can't I can't be without my mum, I can't leave my mum. And she just sort of very calmly said, Okay, well, firstly you don't have to, and secondly, why? Which people hadn't done before P- previously no. people have been going well you can't come to school with you know you, you, you can't, can't with your, your mum mother, with you. and you you just got to do this it's what Grow people up do it. they go yeah. to school and you yeah.
2: just and yeah. so she
1: just sort of went okay well let's keep your mum here for a minute and we'll talk and we'll find out what, what do you think will happen and she then came up with this brilliant solution where she said because my mum used to write children's books and she said to my mum um uh, we've got a very good library here you know and mum said yes i i know because in fact ironically it was the school my mum had gone to as a child um and this teacher said, why don't you maybe you could research one of your books in the library for, for a little while. Brilliant. Just, and then she kind of looked across at me and just said, for, just for as long as as long as it took. I mean, you know, it could be a couple of weeks or it could be longer if uh, however long a book takes. And it Fantastic. Was, she never at any point said, do you want your mum to be in school with you? She just kept up this thing of that could that could be a thing then, couldn't it? Mm. So it saved face and it got my mum into the school, then it got me into lessons and within I think about three days or something I just said, Yeah, I'm fine now. You're fine. You can go home, you go you home Mum, you know. Yeah. Um but years afterwards we my brother Jeremy and I did a little drama about about this for Sky. We were asked to do a sort of autobiographical drama and I, I said I wanted to write about that. And I played the deputy head teacher. Um, and I got in touch with her because we'd stayed in touch. And we were always doing Christmas cards and, and things to each other. So I got in touch and I said, look, I'm doing this piece. And you'll, you'll notice when I'm talking about it, I haven't named her because she actually said at the time she didn't want her name mentioned. So we gave her a false name. And, but she was very happy for me to write about it. And I said, look, while, while I've got you on the phone, can you, what do you remember about all of that? And, I, and she was brilliant. She came up with all these lovely little details. Like she said, I remember I remember a very frightened little girl with her shoes on the wrong feet. Uh, and I had no idea. I'd, I'd obviously done that thing of thinking yes. if my shoes were on the wrong feet, I can't go to school, I suppose, yes. but I don't remember. Things have before. to be right yeah. for it to work. So, uh, to but work. apparently, I'd walked into school with my shoes on the wrong feet and uh. she clocked it. Um, and then I said, as a joke, I sort of said, oh, one, one thing I do remember at the time, I remember a lot of the girls saying, we saw you kicking the, head, the deputy head teacher. And she said, yes, you did, dear and i said oh my goodness i'm i'm so sorry and she said no 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 it was just a playful little kick <laughs> and of course it wasn't a play you know i was no. having a massive meltdown yeah. but she rationalized it as that's okay it's not personal she's not a bad child there's no such thing as a bad child she's she's an upset child it was incredible she wow. was just very forward thinking mm. um and j- yes just a rather brilliant woman oh, and, actually fantastic. as i'm talking to you i've just it just popped into my head on the dressing table behind, there's a tiny little brown jewellery box you can see. Yes. Um, which is from her, and it was the last thing she... Because we used to exchange cards and things every year. And when she knew she was very ill, um, she said, oh, I'm, I'm sending you something, dear, and this little parcel arrived. And it was this tiny... Just, apparently she had a collection of jewellery boxes, and she'd wanted me to... She was sending them to nieces and... Cousins, and she wanted me to have Oh, her. how fantastic. So I always keep it there, and I just put what an earrings and things in it. But it's a tiny, tiny little thing that's just a memento of her. Because she did. She put my life on the right track again. Mm. She changed everything. So even there, you see, it's not that negative a memory.
0: No, But just no. those... But that moment is... The, the, that. That's that a desperate moment, oh. isn't
1: it? Well, it's horrible because yeah. everybody was outside having fun. Yeah. and And I think in that situation where with any kind of mental particularly mental illness which it was at the time it was an anxiety disorder I suppose or something but I think you are acutely aware that you know how people always say the worst thing you can say to someone who's depressed or anxious is you know pull yourself together come on just get out of it because that's what you want more than anything you're acutely aware that actually this is coming from you yes that this is not cancer or arthritis or something that's landed on you this is coming from within you but that doesn't mean that you can just snap out of it, it doesn't mean you can just hand it over to somebody else no and I couldn't I could no more snap out of it than so I could have you know
0: right, is there any tiny
1: yeah exactly finish. it just it doesn't it that's not how it is to you and that is in, it, immensely powerful mm-hmm. and I remember being in that sick room and just thinking I could be out there running around with all my friends because I was half an hour ago, I was fine. And then it just suddenly kicked in again. And I could be doing that, but I just didn't, I couldn't know how to make that transition. I couldn't just snap out of it and make it all okay again, mm. because I was who I was for all those reasons at that time. And it was impossible for me to get through it. But I think the reason I sort of went public about it in the end was, um, I, was I was working with a mental health charity at the time um, to do with panic attacks and phobias and things like that. And I just suddenly thought nobody seems to talk about kids having it and it and I know loads of kids who've had panic attacks and anxiety, and it's very 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 it very is very high. common yes. lots of kids who are school phobic once of you go into it, you find uh, no
0: I know and and many of them are just sitting at home mm, and yeah. and they're 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 a completely wasted group of people
1: absolutely and it's and it really you know we need to be more aware of it, and I think the more people who. You know, particularly people who are sporadically in the public eye and and therefore clearly are sort of functioning, you know, doing doing okay for themselves. It's quite good, I think, to just then say, well, you know, when I was 11, everybody kind of was thinking, what the hell is going to happen now? Because I was on the verge of dropping out of school. I was on the verge of not doing any of the stuff that I've done because nobody knew what they were going to do with me. So I think it's important to say to people, it's okay, it's all right, there's a there's a future in this. There is a future, you just can't see it at the moment. No. And that's all right, and you need to try not to be, you know, obsessing about that, because that's something else to worry about. Particularly for those stage, poor children no, who actually... you will be fine.
0: Yeah, those poor children who actually go to the point where they really see no future for themselves. Mm, yeah. And that's an awful thing.
1: Absolutely, and again, is is horribly common. So mm. it's really, really important, I think, if you can, to sort of go, it's, it's okay, just... Just take a step back here because no, no one's asking you to snap out of it. But just do be aware you will not always be like this. It will get better.
0: Yes. So let's take your poor little eleven-year-old yes. self sitting in the sick room with a <laughs> no. ticking clock. I know. Oh,
1: horrible! Oh no,
0: I oh, it's so awful to it's picture horrible, it, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, oh, right, let's lock it in the time yeah. capsule. Yes, it's send gone. it away.
1: We never think about that again. Gone. And let's go for a nice positive one. Yes. Then. Come
0: on, your final item.
1: Um, so, a positive one uh, would really be right up to date, and and it involves you actually and your lovely family. Um, in that uh, you've been to this house many, many times, yes. I know, for Phil's famous Sunday lunches oh. and pre-Christmas lunches. And things. So Phil, my husband, is a fantastic cook and an incredibly keen cook and host. He loves it. He's he's not he's not someone who kind of has to show off his cooking and therefore obsesses about it and gets stressed. He just loves having people around the kitchen table, having a drink and eating food that he's prepared and and having a good time he absolutely lives for it this is yes i've
0: seen him cater to great crowds of people so easily whilst having conversations with everybody and drinking wine and being so easy, it's an
1: extraordinary thing that he can do and i can't do and it amused him hugely when i told him that i was going to put one of phil's sunday lunches into the (laughs) time capsule because he knows that i give him such a hard time about it (laughs) because every time we do it i say to him First of all, oh, God, really? I haven't got the energy, you know? Mm. I've been working the week before. I just, really? Then I complain that he's inviting too many people because he can't just invite, you know, to me just get two people round and we'll have a nice quiet lunch. I don't know. Well, I've got another few couples and their kids are in town, so we've got, you yeah. know, so we, it's only 15. I don't know what the
0: problem is. the audience and of the, the show has yeah. like. sort
1: <laughs> Yeah, and the, the people from the shop round the corner and, and just, <laughs> yeah, they bring you a few animals. And, and
0: he does that brilliant thing of never being embarrassed to put people together who don't know each other.
1: No, in fact, he insists on it, He's yeah. the, which is another thing i have a go at him about because I think that's slightly rude to do that, to sort of tell people where they have to sit. I think it's... It so basically, it, I have a, a go at about everything. I say, "This it's too much food. You spent too much money. What did you have to buy wild salmon for? That's ridiculously expensive. We could have fed a village in, you know, <laughs> Lord knows where on that. It's a stupid thing to do. What did you do that for? Profligate. Um, I, I go on about just everything, everything. I have a go at him about everything. It's all too much effort. And the reality is I do nothing. <laughs> Literally, I turn up. You know, I kind of broadly make sure that the loos look clean because i suburban. Brush Brush my hair if you're lucky. If you're lucky. Turn yeah. up, have a lovely time and mm. enjoy it. And then he usually does most of the clearing up. I do a bit of it because I feel guilty. But he does pretty well everything and I still moan at him about it. So this is sort of by way of um, an apology to Phil that I'm putting this in. Because actually the truth is that those Sunday lunches are a, a crucial part of our lives Mm. as a family and and as a sort of social group a social network for want of a better phrase I think it's helped our kids to become the people that they are because they've been surrounded by a mismatched group of people you know almost every Sunday throughout their childhood they've been expected to you know join in and behave and get mm. on with people and tell stories and laugh at other people's stories and,
0: and they and do they don't do that thing of just going off and playing on the ipad no or, i they, mean they, they do have,
1: they will uh, when they were younger they would you know most of the kids would peel off after lunch and they uh, go and sit and watch a, watch a video
0: or but they'd
1: um but no they were you know both kids will ask questions and they'll listen um and enjoy people's stories and it's meant i think that as they got older they're much more socialised than I think I probably was at that age. They can kind of mix with anybody and fit in with anybody. And, mm. and I think they kind of enjoy it. Certainly Ollie is, is very sociable and, and really loves it. I think Tilly's probably slightly more like me and would quite like to just sit and watch an old film in front of a fire and not have to be doing with it. She gets a huge amount out of it, I think. And I certainly do, um, because it just means our, our kitchen is kind of a hub of interesting fun people of all ages and that's really important as well that we it's not just people of our age it's we have you know we'll have sort of people in their 90s and people in their teens and everybody sits together and everybody you know mucks in and helps clear the table and it's it's all very sociable and very 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 informal
0: My memories of them are always the conversations I've had with the children.
1: Yeah, and you are brilliant, absolutely. I mean, kind of uniquely brilliant with kids. Well, well, I think that's
0: because I always try to talk to them. Well, I always assume, in fact, that they're probably more intelligent than me.
1: (laughs) That's brilliant, yes, and almost certainly true, because kids are ferociously wise and intelligent.
0: And they will see the world in a way that is much clearer Mm. than your sort of befuddled so-called educated idea of the world. I remember my son, as a very young boy, just finding him sitting in the living room, coming in and realising that he'd watched the six o'clock news and was very upset by it. And mm. I said, well, what, are you all right? What's the matter? And he said, they killed someone. And I said, what wh- who did? They said, in America, they they killed him. And I realized that there'd been a report about a man who'd been on death row That's being crazy. executed.
1: Yeah and he was and horrified he
0: just could not understand it
1: yeah
0: what gives you the right to do that
1: yeah how is that making a good lesson of mm. you know it's, it's a terrible thing to kill someone so we're going to kill someone to prove to you how terrible yes um, i may have told you this but um we had a wonderful moment when tilly was tiny she was probably about three and we were watching a news report about that boxing day tsunami which was you know so devastating and it was all over the news and she came into the room and the whole family was sitting watching this. And she said, what's, what's wrong? And we said, oh, sweetie, there's it's been this awful thing that's happened. There's, um, there's been a, a flood. And uh, and she said, where? And I said, oh, well, it's a long way from here, honey. It was, you know, but it's, I'm afraid it's, it's, lots of people have, you know, died. Or, and it's very bad. And she said, where again? And I said, it was in Thailand. And she went, oh. Toilet, I hope so. Noddy is okay. Oh, no. And it just, oh, it was a sort of beautiful so... moment. Oh, on the one hand, we were all feeling devastated by, the, by what had actually happened. And on the other <laughs> hand, it was a wonderful oh, moment of, Toilet. Oh, no, it's okay. It's all right. Don't worry. It wasn't. Oh, it wasn't no. Noddy. Oh. oh, no. I hope so. Noddy is okay.
0: Oh, I, love the, so... I love the syntax as well. Yeah. <laughs> it
1: was just yeah. so Perfect. Perfect. One of the things you're famous for in my family is that when Ollie was about, Ollie was a very late walker. He didn't walk till he was about, I don't know, 15, 16 months old or something, which is, from what I remember, quite late for a baby. And he crawled super fast, so he didn't really need to. But gradually we managed to get him on his feet and he managed to start toddling. And then Phil went away on a business trip and I got offered a radio job down on which we were going to record on a farm in Worcestershire. And you were there. Yes. But I only took it because I knew you were there. And I thought, okay, well, if Mike's there, he'll help me look after Ollie and that'll be fine. So you travelled down with me, I remember. Yes. And looked after Ollie in the car while I was driving. And then when I was doing scenes, you and indeed most of the other actors would take it in turns to entertain Ollie. And that was great. Mm. And Ollie, as I say, had just learnt to walk, so he was just sort of, you know, doing, doing his little sort of toddling about, and everybody was quite enchanted by that, and it was great. And then we drove home again, and Phil came back from his business trip, and the next day, the first day he was back, Phil said, well, what's happened to Ollie's walking? And I said, oh, he's still walking. And he said, no, look, he's doing this weird walk. And you taught him to, <laughs> to walk like a gorilla or something. <laughs> so he'd just learnt to walk he'd finally learnt to walk
0: and, and, and you do,
1: you taught him this thing where his arms were sort of it was like kind of Mr Gumby from Monty Python his arms were stretched out straight and he was kind of leaning forward and jutting his jaw out and doing this, this brilliant <laughs> hilarious but absolutely not appropriate walk <laughs> we we're going to put him in nursery not and now and it was all down to you and oh, yes, I remember just look, watching him walk across the room and then looking at Phil and just came it'll be mike <laughs> I, just, uh, yeah. I just knew it was you
0: yeah um yes i've done that with too many people's children <laughs> i just think that actually if, if it's fun then it can't be wrong yeah you know i mean and it wasn't. It,
1: he's fine now i mean is at yeah. university now he does still walk walk like a gorilla is fantastic. But, but they they love it there it's yeah. it's, a, it's a conversation piece <laughs> <laughs> he became an
0: anthropologist
1: yes and it's all down to you. Anyway, so Sunday lunch, big Sunday lunches, lots of noisy conversation, lots of actors' anecdotes. Um, Your
0: husband in his apron at the my at the stove, his apron,
1: yeah, and me doing virtually nothing, just sitting there and you know having a glass of champagne and smiling at everybody and, and enabling the odd anecdote. Um, but yeah, I do. Don't tell Phil that. Don't ever let Phil listen to this. But no, I do actually now love it, really love it, and think it's a kind of crucial linchpin of our family life
0: so well, i don't blame you it's i've
1: always loved it oh well that's good to know we can tell in that bit yeah just not not the bit about me enjoying it <laughs> oh fantastic so rebecca
0: thank you so much thank for, you very, for very letting much. me into your bedroom yeah. um, what should we do now
1: i don't know i mean we've um, got this got this big bed I, I can't think what we could do
0: okay i'm going to stop the recording
1: now restoration comedy now yeah. <laughs>
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Michael Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Rebecca Front. This program was produced and edited by John Fenton-Stevens and the music was by Past the Peas Music. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe to it on the Acast Player or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us and find behind-the-scenes photos and extra content on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MyTCPod. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Fenton Stevens. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me again next time. Bye.